Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. And would your voice be louder and truer and more defining than all of the other voices in our life. And may you, through this encounter with your word, mold and shape us to be your faithful people in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining with us for the first time today, we've been in a series in the book of Acts, and we're looking together at the emergence and the growth of the early church. And we're asking the question, what was the key to their effectiveness? You know, this, this early Christian movement, it began like a spark, and then it quickly grew into a full blaze forest fire, and it transformed the entire Roman Empire. And so we're asking the question, what was the key to their effectiveness? You know, what was it that the early church did that made their witness so compelling? And uh, so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at different aspects of the church's witness. And today what I want you to see is that this Christian community, one of the things that made them so effective, one of the things that made them so compelling is that these were people who were willing to die for their faith. And so today we're going to be looking together at the first Christian martyr. Now, I was thinking about this topic today for our context, and I was wondering, like, is this, is this story, you know, the story of the first Christian martyr, is it, is it really that relevant for us today? You know, I know for a lot of people in the world, it is incredibly relevant because they're under severe persecution. And for the first few generations of Christians, you know, the the early Christians, first three centuries of the church, they were full on into martyrs. They loved the stories of martyrs. And they they would tell these engrossing narratives of men and women who were willing to get burned at the stake or get crucified upside down or boiled in oil. In, in, in testimony to their faith in Jesus. But of course, that's in a context where it was a great threat to one's life to be a follower of Jesus. And of course, in our day, we just don't live in that kind of context. Now, I, I know there are some of us who we enjoy embracing something of a martyr complex. You know, uh, there was a uh, uh, an author whose name is Sky Jathani, and he has a little book on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this book, he talks about kind of the, 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 the perceived kind of like um, uh, persecution that many Christians in, in America feel today. And he, he developed this little chart that I thought was pretty cool. Somebody said, Josh, you didn't, develop, you didn't write that chart, did you? Because the writing is much more nicer than my writing. But, um, but anyway, he, he kind of created this chart of different categories of, uh, that, that Christians might fall in when it comes to their, their in, environment they're, they're in. And so um, he says down at the very bottom, uh, the very worst kind of environment are persecuted Christians, those who experience high or very high or severe persecution. 215 million Christians live in this state today. Uh, they risk their life for being a follower of Jesus. And then he has up that, uh, up above that is uh, environments where Christianity is permitted. Uh, maybe people don't like it, but it's at least permitted to be a Christian. And then above that is where Christians have a preferred status in the culture. And so, for example, in our own culture, uh, I have tax benefits for being a Christian minister. Uh, you can still get tax benefits for giving to a church organization. And so there's some preferences for being a, a Christian in, in even America today. And then up above that is uh, environments, and maybe this is earlier parts in American history where Christians were privileged. 
And he says that um, it, in, in the United States today, you have uh, a lot of Christians who they've just barely dipped below the privileged line and into the preferred uh, state, and they are crying out, oh, no, we're, we're, you know, they're out to get us. And he says, meanwhile, you know, the, the Christians who are, who are literally being killed for their faith down in different parts of the world today are, are looking up and going, seriously, you know? Anyway, I, I thought, did you guys like the chart? I just wanted to share that with you. Anyway, I think for, for, for a lot of us, on one hand, I mean, it doesn't maybe seem that relevant of an issue because we don't find ourselves under threat to sharing our faith. But I think another reason why I think martyrdom is just kind of confusing, I think, to a lot of, of Christians and to a lot of religious people, just to a lot of Americans, is we are pragmatic people. And have you ever had this thought? Like, I mean, people who, who die for their faith, have you ever just wondered, like, well, couldn't you just say, like, in my heart I believe, but just with my mouth I'm going to profess something different? And just kind of, no, you didn't think that. You are way too committed. But I, I think for a lot of Americans, somebody who dies for their faith just seems kind of like a religious extremist. Somebody who has just got, you know, they're, they're taking their faith way too far. You know, uh, a while back, I was reading an essay, an essay by a Christian ethicist whose name is Stanley Harawas, and he taught at Duke uh, Divinity School for many years. And in this essay, he is reflecting upon uh, the mass suicide at Jonestown. And some of you remember this in the late 70s. Uh, there was a group of people, uh, 900 of them, who together collectively took their own life in the name of their faith. And in this essay... He asks the question whether or not their actions should be treated with moral seriousness. Now, when I was reading this essay, I, I probably responded the way Stanley Harris wanted me to respond. I'm like, what? What are you, like, Jonestown? Like, you're going to write an essay on whether or not this is a morally serious action? And, uh, and, and, he, and he points out as he writes, he's using this to just make this point. He says, look, for most Americans, religion, like... It, the, the problem is not whether or not your religion is true or false. Like, they weren't concerned whether or not the things that the people at Jonestown believed were true or false because religion for many Americans is just a matter of personal preference. He says the real problem with Jonestown for most Americans, as you look at this, is that we just think they took their religion way too seriously. And he writes this. He says, being modern involves at least agreement that no one ought to take religion too seriously, especially if it is going to ask any real sacrifice from us. And so advocates of religion, from the more sophisticated to the craziest, tend to hawk their wares by promoting religion will provide us with meaning, or at least reinforce our ideas of what a fulfilling life should be. He goes on sarcastically to put it like this. He said, religion is dangerous and must be properly domesticated before being given any allegiance. Religion, like certain kinds of drugs, should be taken only in moderate amounts and under carefully controlled conditions. I remember when I was a youth pastor, um, I had a parent that asked to meet with me. And she was very concerned about her son and uh, she was not a church-going person, and her son had gotten really excited about his faith. And, and I've had, you know, as a youth pastor, you have parents come in, and they want to talk to your kids because they're getting into drugs or alcohol or they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Uh, but, this, but this mom wanted to talk to me about her son because she said she was really concerned that he had recently given a great deal of money to the church. 
And she was like, look, you know, I, I'm okay with religion. I'm okay with this. But, but he, she's like, he is taking it way too seriously. Like, it is actually costing him something. He's serving, and he's, he's being way too generous. And she's like, can you talk him out of this? I'm like, well, this is kind of like what we're trying to get them to do, you know? But in all, in all seriousness, I mean, on, on the one hand, I'm actually sympathetic with her concerns. Because religious extremism can be a problem. And people who are full-on into their religion can sometimes be easily exploited. They can be used for their time and their money. And uh, coercive leaders, uh, cult leaders can manipulate them and get them to do whatever they want. And so, and so, yeah, of course, religious extremism, like being so committed, can sometimes be a problem. But on the other hand, Jesus, when he calls us, invites us into into lives of radical commitment. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. You know, in the ancient world, the cross was an instrument of torture and death. And Jesus is essentially saying, the one who follows me must be willing to die for me. Or as uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And you know, when Jesus uh, talked to that rich young ruler and he said, hey, sell everything, give to the poor and come follow me, his disciples responded by saying, Lord, we've left everything, we have followed you. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, well, you know, cool it down, you know, religion is good, but you gotta, it's gotta be cut with water, you know? But he's like, he's like, no, there is no one who has left father or mother or, or sister or brother or homes or lands for my sake or the gospels that will not receive back a hundredfold now in this life and in the age to come eternal life. And so Jesus calls us into lives of radical commitment to himself. And so what we're going to do today is I want you to, to, to just enter in with me into the story of Stephen, the first martyr, because I think we learn from him what it looks like to take our commitment to Jesus with utter moral seriousness. Now, uh, the, the, the story of the first um, Christian martyr begins in Acts chapter 6. And let me just set it in its context the church at this point has been growing. It went from 3,000 to 5,000, and every day more and more people are being added to its number, and they are sharing resources together. We looked at that last week. But this sharing of resources created something of a management problem. You know, how are we gonna ensure that some people are not taking advantage of the situation? How are we gonna ensure that other people who have real need, uh, their needs are being met? And so in order to address this problem, the, the, the apostles felt like it was way too much for them to handle. And so what did they do? Well, they said this. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the, the church does that. They, they select seven people. One of the seven who is appointed to serve the tables is a man whose name is Stephen. 
And it turns out as the story unfolds, Stephen is not just a man who's adept at serving tables and management and systems. Uh, He is a man filled with the Holy Spirit and he does signs and wonders and he is a brilliant intellect and preacher. And look at what it says. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia, I can't say all these names, and Asia rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So it looks good. You know, the needs are being met. A great, Stephen's a great leader. He's particularly powerful. But, but here is where things go south. In his ministry, apparently he is upsetting some other people who are from a a, a network of synagogues. And they're upset because they, he's saying things they don't understand. They're like, what what did he say about the temple? What did he say about Moses' law? What's he saying about this Jesus? And they're troubled. And so what do they do? Well, well, Stephen is smart. He's articulate. He's filled with the spirits. And they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they cannot defeat him at his own game. They cannot come up with better, more sound biblical arguments Uh, They cannot enter into the stage of listening and reasoning together. And so what do they do? They pull a card from American political discourse. And rather than engaging with their opponent in thoughtful dialogue, they distort the truth, they name call, and they start to spread false narratives about Stephen. And look what it says. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. Now, at this point... Uh, there's a switch for the situation of the church in Jerusalem. So early on, first it was Peter and John who were taken into custody and threatened by the authorities. And then in chapter five, persecution starts to escalate. And now all of the apostles are taken in and they're not just questioned, they're actually beaten by the authorities. And now at this point, what, what, these, what these guys are doing is they are spreading narratives and they are inciting now not just the leaders, but they're turning the people against the church and particularly against Stephen. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. Notice where they are attacking him. They're saying he is, he is teaching things we don't like about Moses and about the temple. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that is the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I was struck by that line because when people attack me, when they accuse me, when they raise arguments against me and send me nasty emails to me, my face does not look like an angel. It looks like a demon, you know. But here, Stephen is calm and cool and collected. His face is like an angel. Now, what is going on here? Well, 
Stephen is taken and he's apprehended. He's taken before the authorities. In essence, he is being put on trial in a court of law for a capital offense. He has been accused of blasphemy. And in the ancient world, the world of the Jews in the first century, uh, they didn't go for freedom of speech and freedom of religion. No, if you blaspheme the name of the God of Israel, Leviticus 24, 16 was clear, the blasphemer should be stoned to death. So now they have accused him of a crime that could lead to his own death. And it's at this point that the guy who's presiding over the trials looks at Stephen, whose face is like an angel, and he's like, well, stand up and speak. What do you got to say for yourself? The high priest said, look, you've heard these charges. They've said you've blasphemed God, you've blasphemed the law, you've blasphemed the temple. Are these things so? And it's interesting because Stephen doesn't answer the question directly. Instead, he tells a story. And he tells a story that it's not just any old story. It is the story of Israel. In essence, what he's about to demonstrate to them and to us is he's saying, look, I'm orthodox. I know the story. I know our story. You're accusing me of blaspheming God, but my life and teaching is right on line with the story of God. Now, we're not gonna read his whole defense because it is 50 verses long. So instead, what I want to do is I want to highlight um, two themes that, that are, he, he draws out of the story of Israel. It's interesting because he's accused of blaspheming God, of blaspheming the temple, of blaspheming the law. And in response, in telling the story, he draws out two themes. And the first is theologically insightful and beautiful. And the second theme is risky and courageous and bold and confrontational. And the first theme is about the temple and specifically about the presence of God with his people. Now listen, he's accused about speaking against the temple. And so in telling the story, Stephen begins the story of Israel with the pre-temple movement of God and pre-temple encounters with God. And he says this, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from the land that, and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So he says, Abraham, you know Abraham. They're like, oh, Abraham, we like Abraham. You know, he's like, well, you know Abraham. Where did God encounter Abraham? It was not in Jerusalem and it was not in the temple. It was out in Mesopotamia. And after speaking of God appearing, his presence meeting Abraham outside of Jerusalem before the temple in Mesopotamia, he then speaks about another famous leader in Israel's history, encounter with God, namely Moses. And he says this, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. You know, you've heard the story about burning, you know, God meets Moses in the burning bush. He's like, where was it that God appeared to Moses? It was not in Jerusalem and it was not in the temple. It was outside uh, on Sinai in the burning bush. And he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near, he took, he took to look. There came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
They thought the temple in Jerusalem was the only place where there was holy ground, the only place where you would encounter the presence of God, but he says no. And then he moves from Moses to the tabernacle in the wilderness, and he says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. He's, re he's referring here to the tabernacle. So before there was a temple in Jerusalem, a God met with his people in a tent that you could erect and then take down and then it would kind of move with the people. Anybody here like camping? Anybody here like setting up tents and taking them? This was Israel in the wilderness and the glory presence of God would meet with his people outside of Jerusalem before the temple in a tent that traveled with him through the wilderness. And he says, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nation. That's not me, Joshua. That's a different Joshua in the Bible. When they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And then finally, he now talks about the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. So David was like, God, I live in this nice, lovely palace, but you poor thing, you live in a little tent. He's like, let me build you a great structure in Jerusalem. And he asked to find a dwelling place for God, but he says it was Solomon, David's son, who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? His point is clear. God doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. Sure, he chose to be present in the temple, but make no mistake, God was never contained by the temple. The heaven of heavens cannot, be, cannot contain him. And so Stephen is here on trial for speaking against the temple. And, and most likely what he was saying about the temple was something that the apostle had been saying about the law and about the temple. Listen, he wasn't blaspheming the law and the, the temple. He was not saying that they were bad. In fact, the New Testament doesn't say that the Old Testament is bad. But listen, in Jesus, God is doing and has done something new. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus' teaching is the new law. Don't you remember the story? He says, before Solomon, there was no temple. And after it, God was not contained by the temple. Your obsession with this building is off base. God has done something and is doing something new in Jesus. The story of God's presence and his engagement with us has never been static. It has always been a dynamic journey. And to illustrate, let me just put it like this. Imagine, in fact, I'm trying to imagine this right now, if Alicia and I were planning to go to Hawaii uh, next week. And here was our plan. We were gonna hop in the car, drive it to LAX, park in the structure, hop on the shuttle, go to the airport, walk to the gate, get on the airplane, fly over there, hop off the, hop off the airplane, and finally land in Hawaii. Now, in order to get into the shuttle, we have to get out of the car. In order to get into the airport, we have to leave the shuttle behind. In order to get on the airplane, we have to leave uh, walking behind. In order to get on to Hawaii, we gotta leave the airplane behind. Now, does that mean that walking or the car or the shuttle or the plane were bad? No, it only means that they were temporary. 
They were good stops, a part of a necessary stops in order to get to our final destination. And this is the law, and this is the temple. Necessary stops on the final destination, and he's saying, look, the destination has arrived, and the destination is Jesus. So he's got a second line, though. So his first line is a little bit, he's building a positive case for the story climaxing in Jesus. But he draws out a second theme in the story of Israel, and this one is risky and bold and confrontational. Watch this. So after beginning with Abraham, he then highlights the way their fathers, the very people who are accusing and trying him, he highlights the way their fathers responded to the two of the main leaders in Israel's history. The first is Joseph. And he said this, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and God gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Joseph was rejected and betrayed by his brothers, and the one who was rejected was made ruler and deliverer of his people. And after turning from Joseph, he turns to Moses. And he says, what's true of Joseph is also true of Moses. Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer, having received living oracles to give to us, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And so do you see the second theme? He says, this is the theme of the people of Israel. It's a theme of human life. God raises up a deliverer and a ruler, and your fathers keep rejecting him. And now he applies this truth boldly to the people who are standing in front of him, before whose, it, it, the, the people in whose hands hold the power of life. They can take his life. And look at what he says. He says, you stiff-necked people. You know, every sermon needs a good application. And Stephen gets to the end of his sermon, he's like, look, you know, we talked about the temple. We talked about the rejection of your fathers. He says, now let's apply this whole thing. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, at this point, this is all too much for this crowd. And look at their response. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is beautiful. They, they, they cried out with a loud voice and, and, and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man whose name is Saul. And here's the beautiful thing. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, as the stones are crashing down on his head from the people who are killing him, he says this, Lord, do not hold this sin against against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And our story ends. 
And I want to stand back and just ask these three simple questions. Number one, why are the religious leaders so filled with rage? Now think, think with me for a second. What's the difference between Stephen and the people who kill Stephen? What, how, how, it's not that Stephen is religious and they're irreligious. And it's not that Stephen is a committed Bible-believing pe- person and the people are, you know, rejecting the Bible and rejecting, you know, God. No, these, these both groups are, are, are religiously committed. They both believe the Bible. But, but one group has been inspired by their religion to kill someone and the other group has been inspired by the very climax of their religious story to die for people. You could say that both Stephen as well as the crowds around him are religious extremists. You know, it was just disturbing to me when I was working on this text this week how religious commitment and rage against somebody who you think is a heretic can oftentimes go hand in hand how religious devotion, how we can almost mistake religious devotion for what in actuality is resistance against the Spirit of God. Martin Luther King put it like this. He said, look, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In other words, listen, it's really important to ask, where is your religion taking you? What is your religious devotion, your commitment to God or what you think is a commitment to God and to the scriptures, what is it producing in you? And here's a good diagnostic question. If what it's producing in you is rage and anger and hate against someone who is not like you, who doesn't live like you or vote like you or dress like you or think like you, if it is filled with rage toward the other, if it is causing you to pick up stones and hurl them at people or to send mean, nasty emails to people or look down disdainfully with people, whatever's happening in your heart, it is not what the spirit of the living God who is revealed in Jesus is seeking to produce. What he produces in Stephen is not an extremist of hate. It's actually a willingness to take stones and to pray for his enemies. Which leads us to a second question. Why is Stephen so gracious in this text. You know, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, who's done a great deal of uh, research on Second Temple Judaism and the time before Jesus came, he said, leading up to the time of Jesus, uh, there was actually a number of different martyrs in Israel's history. He says, martyr stories were really famous and they were told and retelled, told people love this. I mean, this was before television, so this is like the dramatic stuff, people dying for their faith. But N.T. Wright points out that, that when those martyrs would be killed, they would always stand boldly to their accusers and they would warn them, you torture me now, but you just wait. And, and, and you'll see God is gonna torture you for all of eternity. 
and they would call out. But he says, when you get to the Christian martyrs, there is a radical shift. And rather than praying down judgment and hellfire, they are praying forgiveness over their enemies. Because this is what Jesus taught. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you and spitefully use you. Are you? Do you? People who attack you, who come after you, people who you find threatening around you in this culture, like, oh, they're taking us, our values away from, like, what is your posture toward them? Stephen prayed over them. He prayed for forgiveness. The last words that came out of his mouth was, Father, forgive them. He was saying, Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. I was thinking, you know, the, the real extreme thing that happens in this text, it, it's not just that Stephen is willing to lay down his life for his faith. The extreme thing is that he is willing to pray for his enemies. And so Stephen is doing something that he saw modeled in Jesus. When Jesus' hands were being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here Stephen in his own death is walking in the way of the cross. So why is Stephen, why are the crowds so angry? Why is Stephen so gracious? And let's close with this question. Why is Stephen so calm? I mean, how can Stephen be so calm in the face of people who, who are threatening to take his life? You know, Alicia and I were talking last night with the girls and whatnot, and um, my daughter, Lucy, said, Dad, would you die for your faith? And Alicia said, I don't think we actually know what we would do. I mean, we'd all like to say that, right? I would stand and deliver on that day, but would you? I mean, what are you willing to stand up and sacrifice for Jesus now? You know, what makes you think you'd be willing to do that in the face of death, you know? But of course, Stephen, what is it that gives him his boldness? Well, first and foremost, he was filled with the Spirit. He was enabled to do something he could not have otherwise have done. And I don't think in my own strength I'd ever be willing to die for my faith, but I think in dependence upon the Spirit and the grace of Jesus, I might die for my faith. But it's not just what was strengthening him from within. What caused him to stand with calm was what he saw without. It was, it was the vision that he was given. And what is it that he sees right before his execution? He sees the glory of God, and get this, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, which is odd, because the posture of royalty the posture of a king is to sit on a throne. In the ancient imagination, the king sat and ruled from his throne. But here Jesus is not sitting, he's standing. And part of the reason for that is in the ancient world, there was no separation of powers. They didn't have the uh, executive branch and then the judicial branch. No, the executive and the judicial branch were the same. The one who could stand and render a final judgment was the king overall. And here what happens is Jesus stands and he, he, he stands from the throne and he takes the role of prosecuting or of defense attorney. 
And here, he stands to be the advocate for Stephen who is standing on trial. There was no one in that court on that day to stand up for Stephen. He was there and he was alone and he was surrounded by his accusers. But he did have someone standing for him. The glory he saw was the advocacy of Jesus. There is only one courtroom that really matters. And look, it's not the one we have to prove ourselves or to justify ourselves before each other. The only courtroom that ultimately matters is hidden from human sight. But listen, if the fog were to lift and you could see him standing for you in the trial, the only trial that really matters, do you know his advocacy? Do you know his love? That he stands for you, he advocates for you. Commentator Willie James Jennings puts it like this. He says, this will always be the case for believers. No matter how hard they are thrown, the stones cannot separate Stephen from God. Nor can any stone, no matter its velocity, its surprising angle, or its accuracy in hitting our vulnerable places, ever separate those who know the Savior from God. And when that truth goes down deep in your life and in your heart, you can stand with courage and boldness in the midst of the most heinous and harrowing of circumstances. 